Hey, I'm Matt Markin, and it's time for episode 62 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In this flashback episode, here's some of my favorite interviews from year one of the podcast with Dr. Virginia Lohagan from San Diego State University, Dr. Craig Seal and Monica Polito from CSU San Bernardino, and graduate students Abby Weavers and Alanis Williams from University of South Dakota. Subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. Let's get to episode 62. and welcome to episode 62. It's July 2022, but in this episode, I'm doing a rewind of sorts by putting together some of my favorite interviews from year one of the podcast, 2020. So let's begin, shall we? Let's jump to episode 18, which aired in early September of 2020. I chat with Dr. Virginia Lohagan. We have Dr. Virginia Lohagan, who is the faculty director of the Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Resource Center at San Diego State University. She is also the chair of the SDSU APIDA Employee Resource Group. Previously, she served as a faculty member in SDSU's College of Education, where she directed the Liberal Studies Program, coordinated several international travel abroad programs, led teaching credential programs coordinated clinical practice, and taught various courses in education and literacy. Prior to working at SDSU, she was a K-8 classroom teacher, community college reading instructor, and program chair for an online university. She is a 2016 recipient of California Reading Association's Marcus Foster Memorial Award for Outstanding Achievement in Reading. She has a BA in English and a master's in elementary education, K-8, and special education specializing in learning disabilities, K-12, through from the University of Virginia. Upon graduation, she received the Outstanding Woman Scholar in Education Award. She earned her doctorate in education with an emphasis in literacy from SDSU-USD in May 2008. Her dissertation has a qualitative study on the cultural authenticity of Asian American children's literature. She has authored over 300, I'll say that again, 300, Yes, 300 children's books and several academic publications about using multicultural children and young adult literature. Most of her books feature Asian American themes. She is serving on various book award committees and is the cover editor and book nook columnist for the California Reader. In addition, she participates in a lot of conferences and professional committees. Most notably, she chaired the California Collab in 2019 in San Diego and that's how she met Matt Markin, and her life has never been the same since. Oh, my goodness. Virginia, how are you? Fine, thanks, Matt. <laughs> you are absolutely right. My life has never been the same. I don't know what I would have done. I, I don't know how I lived without a Matt Markin in my life for all these years. <laughs> so I know I asked you to send me your bio a few weeks ago, and I was pleasantly surprised. Well, I hope I'm pleasantly surprised by reading that last sentence. So has your life never been the same in a good way? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know what I would have done without you, Matt. You you are the spark in my sparkle. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, and I'm sure we'll probably get to this later in, in the interview, but it was a fun time. I enjoyed uh, you as the conference chair and, you know, stressing you out a little bit some of the times during that conference. <laughs> <laughs> but how's life right now in San Diego? Well, you know, it's still sunny. 
Um, so we, we still have great weather. Well, it's really hot right now, but it's still sunny down here. Um, and like everywhere else, you know, we are, um, making it through COVID. Um, and like all the other CSUs, you know, we will be going online, um, or a high flex is what we call it. Um, you know, so we are, um, you know, ready to create wonderful student experiences and, making it virtual so that we can um, be responsible in this time of COVID, but also not lose any of the um, the fun and, you know, the academic rigor and all the stuff that, um, you know, students are expecting at a university. It's definitely going to be interesting time. Uh, do you already have students asking, like, what's going to happen in spring semester? Oh, of course. Well, <laughs> Matt, I, I'm asking what's going to happen in spring semester. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> I know it's not just the students. I think it's everybody. But I think one thing that we've learned, um, you know, and I, and I think the, you know, the little bit that you have experienced of, uh, you know, the, the velo over here, um, I, you know, I, I, um, I like structure. I like knowing things. I like having an agenda. I like, you know, I like I'm organized. I'm, I like my charts. You know, I'm very, I'm, I, I'm, I'm anal in a lot of ways. <laughs> Uh, and I will recognize that, but I thought so how I get stuff done. Um, but, you know, I have learned along with everybody else during this time, it's like, we just got to let it go. I mean, we can yeah. plan for what we know at the moment, and then it is what it is at the end of the day. Um, and I feel like, you know, everyone hates that saying, it is what it is, but I don't know what else we can use. <laughs> It is what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've been using that one for a while now, and I know some people are probably just very annoyed. And I'm like, yeah, but there's how else do you put it? Yeah. <laughs> In your past experience, you were a program chair for an online university. Um, does your experience from chairing a program connect with how things are run now at a campus that was primarily on campus and now is primarily online? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I have learned a lot. I was not, um, uncomfortable going online. Um, and you know, and Matt, I'm going to be honest with you too. I love the fact that I can work remotely online in my pajamas. And I was teasing Matt earlier before we came <laughs> on that I had showered for him today. Um, which is a big deal. <laughs> I will say my hygiene has not been like great during COVID. Right. Um, but I do, you know, I do, I, I think it's, it's, I, I like that there's that freedom. Um, and I also feel strongly that whether, whatever platform, if you're online or if you're in person, um, you know, if you're not good at what you do, it doesn't really matter. Um, so it's, it's really about the person. Like if you're good at what you do, you can translate those skills into an online platform. It's not necessarily, um, you know, about like the online learning is bad or online teaching is bad. I think there are bad online teachers and bad online programs, just like I think there are bad teachers. Um, and, you know, I'm also as a teacher educator, you know, I've worked and a former classroom teacher I have worked with in the K-12 environment and in higher ed. Um, so I know how important teachers are. And I know I mean, I can I'm not going to bore you with all the research on the efficacy of teaching of teachers. Um, but to me, it's the teachers that matter. You know, I think I have parents, friends that are, um, you know, parents, and they're constantly worried about like the good schools. And I'm always pushing back. Like it doesn't, to me, it's not about the good schools. It's about the good teachers. 
who, you know, like I would look at who mm-hmm. is teaching versus, you know, like what we think are good schools. So, you know, I think it, it all relates to teachers. Um, so I, you know, I think the same thing with going online, um, being, being online is not the, um, I think there can be so much effectiveness that happens online. And I also find that with online learning, um, we actually push students to be better writers because they have to write. And it's also more democratic in ways because everyone has to participate, you know, by, by doing various different things. So there's a lot of benefits to um, teaching online. Now, I will tell you that my my um, criticism um, will be of accelerated programs. Um, I, you know, and I've also taught at um, University of Pittsburgh in their online master's program, and that's those are o- online but semester long, and so you get the same experience, you know, as you would at you know any university, but it's over a period of time. So you allow people the same amount of time to read and to write and all that stuff. So I'm not my criticism is of not of online education, but of accelerated programs. That was probably more than you wanted. <laughs> Here's the thing with, with this interview is I don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And people who know you will understand why. Go no, anywhere. You don't know. <laughs> but to answer your question, of course. So I think that you know, the skills that I learned um, are definitely coming into play. And, um, you know, and I appreciate that. And I also have to say, like, I think, you know, people just have to kind of embrace the online environment and focus on the positives. Um, and you know, there really are, there's a lot of benefits to this. Yeah. I'm interested to see like other schools and other States that are going to be back on campus, how that's going to go. But I know for many of the schools here in California, it's, it's virtually online, uh, with maybe 1%, like for our campus, we have like 1% of our classes that are on campus, but everything else is still going to be virtual. But let's talk about your, your new role. Cause you're the faculty director of the Asia Pacific Islander Desi Resource Center. So. Is this center new and what's what's your job entail? Sure. So for short, because I know that's a mouthful. So for yeah. short, it's called a PETA. Um, and, but although I liked in the intro and in my intro, how you, you like said each syllable. <laughs> I, I, I said, I'm going to do my best for Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's the PETA center. So yeah, no, this is really exciting. Um, so it is the, um, and on the inaugural, Director, so that means that uh, it is an, it's the newest cultural center at San Diego State, um, and you know we we have like a black resource center um, and a Latinx resource center. Um, so this is the latest, um, and I, I'm really excited to be starting it from the ground up. So that was one of the reasons why you know I made the I made the move. Um, and it is, yeah, it's really quite exciting. I'm, you know, committed to serving the APITA communities, uh, my community. Um, I'm also, I identify as APITA. Um, and I'm excited to see what, you know, we can do um, for the APITA community at San Diego State. Um, we have a large, relatively large population. Um, and one of my goals is to bring voice and visibility to the APITA communities. 
Um, so yeah, I'm super excited. And I love, you know, the idea of starting things up and um, creating, I mean, there's challenges, right? There's challenges to doing that. Um, and there's also challenges to coming into an established um, center as well. But um, I like the idea, I, I kind of always considered myself as an entrepreneur. So I like the startup. Um, you know, and I feel like I did a lot of things when I was in liberal studies too, to even though liberal studies has been around for a long time, but you know, we had a, a new, like I, I, um, started the CSAT waiver and the ITEP programs and things like that. So we were kind of in a new, um, um, age and you know, I was able to kind of cultivate all that. So that was really exciting. Um, and although, you know, I did kind of, because that's that's the role that I was in when I met you, um, and uh, you know I I am sad you know and and leaving those programs because I definitely wanted to see a lot of the programs I started finish mm-hmm. as well. But there was no, I mean, timing is everything, and you know I couldn't give up this opportunity. Um, and plus, you know, Doctor Luke Wood is my boss now, and I can't ever say no to Luke. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone can say no. No, I know. So I I I. Th- I I'm thrilled at the opportunity to work with him and you know he's a great person and oh well he you know he spoke at California Collab mm-hmm. um so you know but anyway so I I'm thrilled in this to be in this role and I'm looking forward to um you know all the the things that we can do and um yeah I'm excited I'm excited awesome and of course we're recording this on August 10th this will be uh... Listeners are probably listeners right now. It's September 7th or after. But for you right now, like as the new school is about to start the semester, for you, like how is your resource center? How do you plan on uh, helping students during this virtual environment for APETA students? So we're going to provide a lot of different initiatives and programs. So, for example, we're going to provide some academic programs. Um, We'll provide mental health programming because, I mean, as you know, you know, the mental health um, issues are important in the PETA communities and often overlooked, underestimated, ignored. Um, You know, so we'll be focusing on that. We'll also be focusing on cultural and identity programming um, and, you know, lots of socials. You know me, I like socials. <laughs> but I also think that that's a good, the socials right now are also really important because, you know, I'm trying to launch this in the time of COVID online. Um, so I don't have the advantage of having a physical space in the center where students can come and just hang out um, and get to know each other. We also know what happens in informal spaces. Um, you know, so that's not, we're, we're, that's not what's happening without a physical center, but I'm going to try to build, build as much community as possible um, with creating, you know, online social um, events. And, and well, and I mean, I'm, I joke about this, but I'm also, this is like real, like legit, but I mean, I met my husband online, you know, we can have relationships mm-hmm. online, we can build those relationships. You know, and my husband and I are going on 10 years of wedded bliss. You know, I don't know if he would say wedded bliss. I certainly like our marriage. But, you know, anyone that knows that have seen my Facebook jokes and know, know that I'm pretty much in charge. So I'm okay. Yeah, see, I, I, would, I would agree with that. Well, I guess we go if we go off on a tangent a little bit, because you mentioned your husband. Uh, how's your husband doing? Because uh, recently you all went camping or kind of went camping. <laughs> Matt! <laughs> 
Okay, so Matt is making fun of me right now um, because my husband decided to rent an RV for a week um, this summer as our vacation. And um, I am really surprised I said yes, actually. But I only said yes because in my head, I envisioned something completely differently. Like I had envisioned like a Beyonce tour bus. I like I just I don't know what I was thinking. And then of course, you know, Jeff pulled up with one of those Rent America vans. I don't know what they were, but came up and um, you know, we you had to, just lots of things. It's like camping, which I don't understand. I like I, I don't like camping. Uh, but you know, you gotta the poop and pee on the on a moving vehicle, then you gotta pump it out. Like it's a lot I mean, I granted I didn't do any of that. Yeah, no, I did nothing. Matt's making fun of me because I did nothing but complain the entire time. And um, in fact, like we had to, I mean, Jeff basically got sick of my crap, you know, so we left early, like halfway. (laughs) And he, even he joked, he's like, I'm surprised you lasted this long. I was like, I know, like, I don't know. See, so he was pleasantly surprised that you probably, that you said yes, and that you lasted as long. So he, he did get some enjoyment out of it. Well, and it was like, yeah, like I said, it was supposed to be a week long trip and I, we lasted two nights, came back home the third day. Yep. I wonder if he had bets with his friends to see how long you would last. <laughs> I know everyone should have taken bets on that one. But now, you know, of course people are sending me, it's like a big joke now. Like I get RV um, emails daily. That's a good idea. I should start sending you some of those. But yeah, even I will admit I was a brat. Yeah. Like I, I complained the whole time, but in my defense, we also took our two dogs, our two big dogs, about 50 pounds. they were also not happy. So, um, you know, Jeff was just kind of overpowered <laughs> or outnumbered, rather. So it's like th- three against one. <laughs> right. So now you've authored over 300 children's books. And at first I was like, that's got to be a typo. And then I like Googled and I was like, oh, my goodness. So how long of a time frame are we talking with, with these books that of when you first started writing your first one till till now? Okay, let's go back to you doubting me. Uh, uh, <laughs> skip over that. In my defense, having said that, this is what I mean by it is like you're always so busy doing something, you know, uh, whether it was liberal studies or now as the faculty director chairing a conference. How how do you find like do you not sleep like what is what what is this so um yeah so I'm 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 busy <laughs> and I think one of the things that I will admit too that allows me the opportunities to do all these things is you know I don't have kids um and that's by choice um and you know it's actually funny I'll come back remind me if I go on a tangent and I'll come back but like I just read an article in the Atlantic and they were talking about like the differences between um, you know, childless couples and families that have kids, right? The experience of it is different. And it is. Um, you know, because we have, you know, Jeff and I don't have those worries. Mm-hmm. Um, and our work isn't right. really impacted. Whereas I kind of love it when you're on Zoom meetings and then you have you know, like kids like running around. I mean, that stuff makes me laugh. So I'm like, it's fine. But we like we don't have to deal with that, right? Um, but anyway, so part of that too is um, you know my rigorous schedule and my grueling schedule um, is also I'm able to do it because I don't have kids, I don't have those responsibilities, you know, and um, no one's dependent on me to be alive. 
good. And even my dogs that I love dearly, Jeff takes care of them. You know, like when Jeff is away for um, trips and stuff, like those dogs, I don't know how they survive. I forget to feed them. I forget to water mm-hmm. them. I definitely don't take them on walks. Like something, you know, I'll open the door and let them run out. But Jeff is the one that walks them every day feeds them twice a day, make sure their water's full. So like, I, I'm just, I'm not responsible for those things. So that allows me the time and the luxury to assume the projects that I do. Um, and one of which is writing, um, you know, so I get into these grueling schedules. I have these seasons um, and I have these deadlines. I'm really good on deadlines. Um, so in fact, I have to kind of have work on deadlines. Um, so if I don't have deadlines, they just don't get done. Um, so I have these deadlines and then I crank them out. So it's like research, Mm -hmm. research them and then write them and then get them out there. So it's a, it's, it's, I'm, I'm disciplined when, but again, it's when my, when I have deadlines, (laughs) disciplines, and then I am a night person. I mean, I know, you know, this too, because when all my emails get sent, um, but I'm a night person. So I do a lot of my writing and working and stuff at night because I'm usually stuck in meetings in the daytime. And at night I can kind of get things. Plus I'm also chatty in case you haven't noticed. Um, so no one really wants me calling them at two o'clock in the morning to, to chat. Right. Um, although I do have one friend, Dr. Rafael Santa Cruz, who's a mentor of mine. She's also a night owl. So I can call her late at night. But um, it's, it, yeah, I mean, I basically am churning them out and I'm on a tight schedule. But I recognize, too, that I have some luxuries built into my lifestyle that allows me to do that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Now, um, in your bio, it was mentioned that most of your books have Asian American themes. Um, and I mean, I can assume, but why is that important for you to, to make sure that those themes are included in, in your books? Okay, so my dissertation was on the um, cultural authenticity of Asian American literature. And I, I've, um, this has been a topic that has been near to dear to me. Like, for example, I can remember um, the first time that I saw a Asian character in a book. So I'm going to go back to little eight-year-old Virginia, Matt, in in second grade. You know, I remember my second grade teacher read aloud In the Year of the Born Jackie Robinson by Betty Bayer Lord. And she read this aloud, you know, because teachers, they read aloud chapter books, right? And um, I remember she read that aloud. And I thought like, wow, like there's a Chinese girl in that book. And she's just like me. And, you know, it's an immigrant story. So I can relate to, to a lot of it. And then, um, I remember at recess making up things because, of course, then I was like popular for two weeks, right? While we're reading it, and I was looking at me like, "Is that true? Like, you trying to do that?" Because I'm like, "Yeah, trying to do that." I don't know. All of a sudden, you became the expert. I know, yeah. <laughs> and I took it right. I'm like, that was before we understood what like tokenism and all that stuff. Was. But I'm like, I'm popular right now. I'm gonna go for it. So, you know, I just remember how that felt to have to be represented 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that it just shows like the importance of windows and mirrors to quote Dr. Rudin um, Sims Bishop work. And, you know, that's and then when I was teaching elementary school, same thing, I, I would be looking for books that, you know, represent the PETA experience. And I do think that because I'm a PETA, I'm going to be the teacher that brings in that content because it's important. But if I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking for that. Right. So I think that's also why it's important to have diverse teachers in the workforce and the teaching force, because, you know, we bring in those issues. Um, but then I, you know, I just realized how important it is to have those experiences represented. So it just got me into writing, um, you know, different stories. I guess I've always kind of, you know, thought that I, um, I mean, in sixth grade, I won the, um, uh, best writer award at my elementary school. I made up my own newspaper. Um, I made a deal in the fourth grade with my teacher where I said, you know, if I write this book and get it published, can I get an A in fourth grade? And of course she was like, yeah, you know, sure. And I thought like, whoa, I just made the deal of the century. And then having taught, you know, of course, fourth grade, I've taught second through um, eighth grade. So, oh, actually I've taught kinder through eighth grade. But anyways, having taught, um, fourth grade, you know, I thought, yeah, my teacher, like she kind of banked on the fact that I wasn't going to get it published. Like, why not (laughs) make this deal with this 10 year old? You got nothing to lose. So, but anyways, like I've always written, but it's also, um, you know, I think also growing up with um, being Asian, um, you know, it's just writing wasn't sensible. You know, like I'm not gonna, in my head, I'm like, this is not, I'm not going to make, you know, the, the, livelihood off this right mm-hmm. so um got into teaching which I always wanted to do too it's not like I, I didn't settle into teaching I love teaching mm-hmm. um so but um you know teaching was is a stable job right benefits job like salary all this stuff is great da, da, da. so I really never saw writing as a real career path and then um one thing led to another and yeah, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I feel like I'm doing well. And I have a lot more stories in me. I have more stories coming out. I, you know, intend on when I retire from the CSU, this is what I want to do. I want to write full time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as you know, CSU has awesome benefits. So I'm <laughs> rolling out. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, this, I, I think there's something about, um, and I guess I, I would say, you know, I always believe in having a side hustle. I guess writing has been my side hustle. And, um, and it's something that's mine, right? It's separate from, you know, the, the other work I do, like this is mine. Um, and I, and I'm not relying on it for my livelihood. So it makes it more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. But, you know, I, yeah, no, I, I, I think putting one foot in front of the other and just doing it is, is really important. Mm-hmm. And it took time. It took time. I mean, I started, my first book came out in 2008. So what is it now? <laughs> 2020 now? <laughs> Which 2020 seems to be going on forever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's like, it's been it's like over 10 years. And going off on a quick tangent, because you mentioned teaching, do you have a favorite grade that, that you've taught? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I love third graders and I love fourth grade content. Because fourth grade content, we learn about California, 
And I love teaching about California history. It's so much fun with Angel Island and, you know, all the immigrant populations. I love California history um, or state history. Um, And then fifth grade is fun, too, because you have U.S. history. Um, But third graders, eight-year-olds are hilarious. So I, I like, yeah, I would say that I like teaching third grade, but I like the fourth grade content. But yeah, third graders, you know, they're just at that age where they um they know how to do things. You know, they can write, they can read, they can um, paste and they're, you know, they have and their critical thinking's kicking in. So they have funny thoughts and, you know, but they're still curious about the, or they still love you and hug you. You know, I don't know how much hugging is happening right now, but, you know, the, the <laughs> they still love you, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, no, I love. Oh, gosh. And I, I'll just share a little tidbit, <laughs> Matt, like how. Um, so I, this is how old, like nothing makes you feel old, like kids, right? So parents and teachers, but anyways, I don't consider myself as old, you know, but I am. Um, and this is why I know I am because I am at the age right now where, but the students I taught in second, third and fourth grade years ago are now graduating from San Diego State. And I'm and like one of my third graders. Well, actually, I had him for two years because I looped. But one of my third graders is just got recruited for a major baseball team. And I still have like his journals that he wrote. I mean, hilarious. I have tons of stories in my head, you know, whatever. But anyways, but I, I remember like his his mother. It was because you know, we have like relationships with the kids, moms to parents, you know, with the parent conferences and all this stuff. And I remember his mom was like, go visit him in his dorm. I'm like, oh, my God, no. Because first of all, he's still in eighth grade. Like, I still see I'm an eight-year-old. He's still in third grade in my head. And I know what happens in college dorms. And I just know. Like, I don't see that. I don't see that. You know what I mean? Like, it's so so weird. Like, they will always just be eight years old to me in my head. And it's weird. Yeah, they've had this whole life now. (laughs) But they're still stuck in time, how you view them. Yeah. So some of the themes like with Asian American literature, a lot of times will uh, revolve around or include like race and culture, finding sense of identity. They do tie into a lot of different things, whether it's like gender, sexuality, um, traditions, culture. So I guess um, that maybe ties also into academic advising. Like, would you say that these are themes that would be beneficial for advisors or professors or staff to know and understand? Absolutely. I think, um, and again, I go back to, I think it's important to have a diverse working force. So it's important to have diversity in advising. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a lot of different reasons, you know, students will, some students, especially I think, you know, for the PETA populations, first-gen students and students that are coming from, you know, refugee, post-war, who have a distrust of government and um, authority, you know, to have someone who looks like them, I think is really important. Um, And, you know, but I also think, because we don't have, that's not always the case, right? We don't always have people that look like our students, but as long as people can understand the experiences and um, understand that, you know, there's a reason why the student might not be coming in. Um, and it has, it's not about, you know, disrespecting the the appointment or you, but it's like, if they have a, dist- if they are, if they are from an immigrant um, refugee post-war environment, then they have, Ish, other types of issues, you know, so I do think that it's important to um, recognize that. And if not to have, you know, my former dean, Joe Johnson, whom I loved. Um, so Dean Joe Johnson, he used to say it's like it's more important to have diverse mindsets 
um, than to be diverse, you know, and I think that that is true. And it's also to open to be, and I feel this way about multicultural church and select too, because when I did my research, one of the things that I found was people were hesitant to um, use multicultural literature in the classroom because they were fearful of offending. And I understand that, you know, I understand like you're not wanting to offend, but I also feel like it, then, then they're erased. I'd rather have like bring it, bring it in and then open up the conversation. Like, why is this image problematic? Like, I don't think we should be censoring books. I don't think that we should be censoring Mm -hmm. thoughts or whatever. I I think they should all be be springboards for further conversations. So, um, kind of don't be afraid to Mm -hmm. offend, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but then be open to dialogue. Um, so, you know, understanding, like you may not understand, um, your students' lives because how, I mean, really we can't because they, they each have their own lived experiences. Um, so we can't, but I also think it's important to be open to knowing like what pos- like what are, what's going on. Um, but I say that. And then I also say, because I have, there's that side of it, but then Matt, and I'm sure you figured this out already, but I also have like a tiger teacher mentality, right? I mean, my kids will tell you I am tough. I was tough on my third graders and I'm tough on my, you know, um, college kids. So I'm tough and I have expectations. And it's funny because, you know, you'll like people will say that I have high expectations and stuff. But I'm like, really, I'm kind of expecting you to show up on time, stay the whole time, do the assignment right well. I'm like, these are not high expectations. <laughs> these are just the normal expectations, but I happen to enforce them. You know, so um, I also think that it's important, especially for our students who come from underserved communities, that we have high expectations for them. Like they don't get a pass just because, you know, like, oh, you know, like you didn't have these resources. No, like you, you know, there's there's different different paths, same outcomes. I still expect you to achieve, um, you know, and you're going to do these things. But maybe we have to think about, you know, like different ways of doing it. But they're still like you still have to meet this. Um, so I have these expectations. Um, but I also have discovered kid, when kids are pushed and when kids have expectations, they live up to them. So and the kids are, you know, like just like my third graders and the same thing with my college kids. They know you can ask them. They know which professors will like they can mess around with and which ones they won't. Mm-hmm. Right. And to me, I go back and say, OK, you know that. But that means you can do it. You're just choosing not to because they know they can get away with it with certain people. Right. So I think that, um, you know, this intrusive mod, um, intrusive advising is important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like in some in some circles that sounds very negative to me, but, it, but to me, it's not. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's, um, you know, I care enough about you to find out what's wrong to, you know, to do this and make you come to all, you know, all this. Stuff. I'm putting in that extra effort because I want you to know that you, you know, you have to live up to this. So um, I think that's important. I, and I think that we can, um, I think that cultural proficiency, um, well, I guess I go back to this idea of like having a diverse mindset. It's like, I don't think it's even hard for me as an APETA identified person to know everything. I mean, you know, it's like the APETA identity is huge. There's so many different, you know, interethnic politics happening, whatever. So I don't think it's on us to know everything, but I think it's on us to be open yeah, yeah. to the idea of you know they might be coming from you know understanding the funds of knowledge but at the same time i expect the same no not even the same sometimes i expect better you know so um but 
tied to that, you know, you hear a lot about like institutional biases. And is there anything that you feel like your current institution or others you've worked at have addressed and how they've addressed institutional bias? Oh, Matt, you, you, you like want to get me fired, don't you? <laughs> For the record, no. <laughs> no, I, I am. Um, you know, it's it's funny because I do. I love working at state. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, like here, like San Diego State. Hear that? Love working at San Diego State, and I've had a great time. San Diego State's been good to me, you know, and I I um, am, am happy about um, being able to be there. And I'm honestly happy, like Matt. I'm just happy to be able to have a job right now, right? I mean, I know that others don't have that privilege, and mm-hmm. I am very cognizant of that. Um, so I'm I'm thrilled, but I also feel like all I think the good thing about what has been happening in this world, um, because you know, there's two pandemics, right? We've got COVID and then we've got the the racial justice issues. Um and I think for me what it's done is um created more awareness. I mean I've always been aware, but it's like now it's like you're looking. Do you know what I mean? Um and it's mm-hmm. you know, right. so I'm I'm actively looking and I'm actively learning. Um, and I, uh, you know, it's like, and then I look at my, myself and my own practices as well. And, you know, my, um, workspaces and it's there, you know, but I, I want to say that it's everywhere. Right. But I do mm-hmm. think that, um, you know, San Diego State has done many things to try to be better. And I, I go back to the Maya Angelou quote, right? Do what you do. Like, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, like, do do what you can with what you know now. And then when you know more, do better, right? So I think that's where we are. It's like we're doing better. And, I, and I'm going to make mistakes. And I know, um, you know, as the leader of a cultural center, too, it's like I'm going to make mistakes. And I hope people allow me that opportunity to make mistakes, but know that I will learn from them. Um, but we, you know, I think we're always in a process of learning how to be better. Um, so I, I'm proud of the work that San Diego State has put in to um, try to be more woke and intentional and deliberate. Like, for example, you know, in the recent years, we started employee resource groups. So I'm the chair of the APIDA um, employee resource group, and we've got a lot of, you know, different different groups. Um, and then, of course, with our cultural centers, and then we have our pledge to support Black Lives Matter. We have, you know, Dr. Luke Wood doing Black Minds Matter. We have, um, you know, diversity liaisons. We have, um, you know, a, a commitment to um, hiring more more African-American faculty. Um, We have, um, you know, a a movement to put um, diversity representatives in search committees. I mean, we're like, we're doing it, right? We're doing it. Um, But the question always like, you know, Mm -hmm. is is it enough? Uh, And can we do more? And of course, yes and yes. Um, And, you know, until I I, I was in um, another organization to which I belong and, I'm chairing the diverse start. I founded and chaired the diversity committee. And one of the, um, a comment that came up was like, well, I, you know, like, I feel like people have had enough, like it's enough of the diversity. And I thought, well, I don't, and I said, not that I thought I said this out loud. It's like, I don't think it's ever going to be enough mm-hmm. until we don't, until we have equality and equity. Like it's not, then it's not enough. People, certain people may have the privilege mm-hmm. of, um, having had enough of hearing about it, that means you have had, you have privilege. 
Um, you know, so it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's these ongoing conversations. And I also think it's important. What I'm learning too is to be more diligent and vigilant. And I mean, Matt, you know, like I, I have a very jokey personality, right? And I, I'm playful and um, I mean, I'm tough too, but I'm also playful. And I think, my God, can you imagine if I was just tough all the time? Like, whoa, <laughs> I'd be really scary. But it's like, I, I know I can be really intense. Um, and I know that my students, you know, I know that they see me as intense too, but I'm also playful. Like I, you know, I, I, I like, I like joking around as well. So um, I have a little mixture of both, but the, I, I'm finding too, it's like, I'm trying to, um, like in my, in my, like, and I also have this thing where when I get uncomfortable, I go to a joke. Right. So I'm, and I'm trying to sit with that discomfort more and not go to the joke and not, you know what I mean? And kind of, um, take it more seriously. Um, and again, like going back to being diligent and vigilant, it's like trying to, trying to pay more attention and, um, I think we're all guilty. We all are. Every single one of us, we're all guilty. But I think, um, you know, trying to learn more and be better is the best that we can do. And I, I only think that we can do that with um, when we're being intentional about our awareness. Um, and then and then I say all that. And then I say, but then I think it is important to joke. And because then it's too much. I mean, even if, Abraham Kendi, right? Like, um, like sitting with all the 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 history um of racism you know i mean he talked about mm-hmm. getting cancer from it you know and i was chang and writing the her book on the rape of nan king like you know um sitting with all of that sitting with all of that oppression and um just you know like she ended up having to uh, she ended up um committing suicide because of it you know what i mean i just think that like we also can't we have to take it more seriously, but we also have to, I think we have to have that balance. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. Do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get it. And I think balance is, is the perfect word uh, to use for that. And I appreciate you being like, the one thing about you is like, you're super honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I think, the conversation that you were in where you spoke up and said that, I mean, for you, like you're always like, if something needs to be said, you're going to say it, you know, there's a lot of people that will think it, but you're the one that's going to be saying it. And we, at this time, this day and age, like we need that. And so one of the things I appreciate about you. (laughs) (laughs) And as we get towards the, the end of the interview, uh, one question I did have was, you know, you chaired the 2019 California Collaborative Conference in San Diego. And one question is like, why did you decide to chair a conference, um, especially as a faculty member? Because, you know, at least conferences I've been a part of, um, it's always been like, you know, professional advisors or staff directors, uh, but not necessarily like someone that is uh, faculty. Yeah, well, I thought it was important because, um, you know, when I took over the um, program director role for the liberal studies program and liberal studies is a really special program. um, It's, it's specialized and it's prescribed and um, yeah, so it's, it's different from other majors, right? So um, and advising was extremely important. And we have uh, designated advisors for the liberal studies program because it's so prescribed. And then we were launching the ITEP and all that stuff. And anyway, so in my work with that, what I realized 
Um, and I think faculty tend to work in silos. I mean, at least like when I was just faculty, um, and I say that very, you guys didn't see like my air quotes, but like, <laughs> you know, I, I there's a lot that faculty do, but like, I do think that we tend to get, we have our classes, we have our departments and, you know, it's, it's hard. Like it wasn't really until I became the program director that I understood like how much, like there's so much more that happens on campus and all the camp, like curriculum committee, which I'm so glad to not have to worry about that anymore. But there's, you know, all these things that come into play, cross campus partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, so these things were made aware to me when I took over that position. And then I realized like how important advising is, um, because that really makes or breaks kids in terms of grad rates. And of course, those are my metrics, right? Um, graduation and retention rates. And so without having good advising, um, you really, we don't have a good program. Um, so it was really important to have those, to have tight advising um, and to work with my advising team. Um, closely to, you know, to serve the students. And then on top of that, the other thing too, it's like, I also worked with our community college partners and the advising departments that, or the counseling departments there, it's called counseling in, in community college. Um, but that was important to build those relationships too, because especially for our transfers, because what we find is that our transfers are often the ones that come in with a lot of missing um, units. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, infrastructure. There's a lot of reasons. Um, and we, you know, so, so anyways, it's like what I realized in this work is how important those, um, the advisors are to, um, to my job. And, you know, so without building those relationships, um, and, you know, that, that partnership really, then I wouldn't be able to do my job. Um, and then when the California collab, you know, I saw, uh, I went to the one in, um, was it Irvine? No, Mission uh, I stayed at the Mission Inn. Where was that? Oh, Riverside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's where I met Matt Markin for the first time. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, so went to that conference. Um, and and it has been like, this is my a different world for me, right? Because I've been in faculty content and you get into your content expertise. Mm-hmm. And then um, as I was getting into this job, it's like I, I started to go to more um, more student professionals. Um, and, you know, now I think in this world too, I think what has, what has been really important for me, and I think what kind of gives me an edge is that I have both, you know, I mean, I can marry, I can really kind of be the bridge between academic affairs and student affairs, which I think is what we need. Um, because student affairs, there's so much that goes on and so much work that happens in student affairs, but academic affairs is where, like, it's that, that's where students do stuff. <laughs> right? Like, if they, if we don't get it into, I, I mean, I know my students do things because they have to do it because they want an A or they want a grade in this class. Um, so I think that those are the partnerships, like where student affairs things are more like optional, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I feel like we kind of need to create this thing where the kids feel like they're, it's all, they have to opt in to it all. Um, so, you know, I, 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 that's kind of my personal goal, um, to be on both sides, you know, to kind of, um, and I, I, I feel like I do have an advantage, like I said before, because I understand how academic affairs works and I'm, um, learning more about what, how student affairs works. Um, and I think I know more about student affairs than let's say my academic affairs colleagues, but I definitely don't know as much as you would, right. As a, you know, as someone in student affairs, but I can appreciate it. And like, I, I have what Joe Johnson says. 
a diverse mindset around it. So I can understand mm-hmm. it, or at least at the very least, defer to the right people. So I also think that as a, you know, um, I, I think that's kind of an often a mistake that faculty advisors make too. It's like, go push, like go, don't try to have the answers for everything. Like there are people <laughs> that actually know how to do that. <laughs> so I think it's important for, you know, faculty just to know who the go-to people, like have a general idea, but then know who the go-to people are. You know, um, so and especially with GEs, you know, like faculty advisors are really good with the major, but with the GEs, not really, you know, so making sure that pro staff is involved there. So I think um, that's where I saw the connection for me it was like I, I knew I wanted to make those relationships stronger and have more of a presence. Um, and also, um, yeah, I, don't, I, I have a hard time saying no to things. I just it sounded like fun. Do it, you know, and then. Yeah. And then a year later, you know, we did it. And then you and I had our mini conversations of Matt had to put up with my venting a lot. Well, those that know about conferences know that it's very, a lot of great things can happen for a lot of great networking. Uh, There's a lot of positives to it, but of course there's challenges along the way. And sometimes you just gotta, you gotta vent. Sure. Well, and I also joked, you know, and I joked about this after the conference when we were debriefing, but you know, no, but none of you told me. (laughs) (laughs) You have to learn it as you go. <laughs> and then, of course, like we did the same thing to Jamie. You know, like how complicated this whole thing is. Um, and I want to give like props to all of us that have ever, and Matt, because I know that you have as well, all of us that have led this conference because, and I don't think people know this, but we did it with little money and, you know, like changing, moving targets all the time. So it was... Um, you know, I mean, it was really, it was a, it was a mm-hmm. challenge and that's what I mean about like, you know, y'all tricking me because they have done it and knows that. But who knows? I mean, I, I thought maybe, maybe it'll be different for other people when they do it. And who, who am I to, to tell them what it's going to be like? Cause I don't know. I like to watch it happen. Be like, uh-huh. I know Matt was like, when I got into pickles and stuff, Matt would be like, yeah, that happened to me. I'm like, what? How come you didn't say anything? <laughs> but fantastic job fantastic job at the san diego conference it, it was a, it was a lot of fun um and then of course you know you mentioned jamie so shout out to jamie zamian uh from sonoma state but i know we're uh, getting uh, close to time so i do want to say like i did find some quotes about you um and so someone said oh. we learned so much today virginia was an awesome presenter knowledgeable focused supportive and assertive and someone said, Virginia was a terrific presenter, one of the best I have ever been able to be a part of. Very straightforward, easy to listen to, and helpful. And I want to say, based off those two quotes, that is exactly how I feel this interview has gone. I mean, I've learned a lot. You're very knowledgeable, very easygoing. And I don't know what it is to, to work for you, but to know you and work on the steering committee with you, it's been a lot of fun. So Virginia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you so much, for Matt, for having me. Oh, and I also do want to say, though, like the other, because I feel like I was making fun of us being on the California collab, and I don't want people in the future to not do this stuff. <laughs> so I just want to say, like, I had a great time. And I'm so thrilled I did it because I got to meet all of you. I mean, like, it's, Really, like Matt and Dwan and um, Gentle Hands and, you know, like that. Joshua? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Joshua Loudon. <laughs> um, but, you know, like we had it. It was a great team. We had lots of fun. And I'm still around, you know. So it's like I, I do think that 
They, um, it has been that, that is the important thing about these type of events is the networking and the community building and the friendships that you make. And I definitely feel like I've made some lifelong friends with, um, um, California collab. And that wouldn't have happened if, you know, I hadn't said yes and volunteered to do that. So I think it's important. So I think your lesson you're trying to say is just say yes to everything. <laughs> yes. If Matt Markin asked you to do something, say yes. Although I do want it duly noted that I was Matt's third choice <laughs> in, in this podcast. I got asked. I was number three. <laughs> Yes, uh, Dwan Jackson and Jamie Zamian were interviewed first. Um, so yeah, I'll explain that story later because because I'll, I'll give the true version of it. Now, my version is the is, is the truth that people need to hear that you ranked me as number three. Oh, look at the time, <laughs> Virginia! Thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> thank you, Matt. <laughs> Virginia is such a dedicated person who looks at every situation as an opportunity to learn, to share, and to grow. And I very much appreciated her honesty in this interview. And thanks so much, Virginia. Next up, let's travel further back to episode 11 of the podcast, which aired in May of 2020. I'm pulling two interviews from this episode. The first is with Dr. Craig Seal, and this was recorded a month into the pandemic where most universities were told early on that we would be working remote and students being virtual for just a couple of weeks and then being told it would be a little bit longer, but not knowing how long that it actually ended up being. All right. So next up, we have Craig Seal, who is a professor of management in the Jack H. Brown College of Business and Public Administration at Cal State San Bernardino. His research agenda is on personal interpersonal capacity development and the scholarship of teaching and learning. His teaching philosophy is to integrate management theory and student written instructor facilitated cases. He received his Ph.D. from the George Washington University, M.A. from Boston College and B.S. from Santa Clara University. Dr. Seal has served as a dean and associate vice president for undergraduate studies, the associate dean for JHBC, as well as the MBA accreditation and student services director. Before pursuing a career in academia, he was a manager and executive with experience in nonprofit, real estate, and staffing industries. Craig Seal, aka the Seal of Approval, welcome to Adventures in Advising. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. So let's begin with uh, how is life like right now for you in this COVID-19 world? For us, and I, you know, I, I feel bad in a way because we're, we're really well situated. Um, you know, my wife and son and I and my, our dog are all home. Um, he's obviously at home taking his classes. He's in sixth grade. Um, she's home. And so we're actually been together, which has been great. Um, and then my transition going from dean of undergraduate studies to now faculty members provided me a little bit of time um, to help with the transition. So um, we're doing really well. Everybody's healthy and we kind of like hanging out together. And it's in a weird way, it's almost been a little fun, although I'm looking forward to getting back out in public a little more, hopefully soon. Speaking because you have your son. So 
are you having to be his teacher as well? He's the good news is he's he's pretty good at staying on task, and so um, his school's been really good, and all the schools have um, in the K through twelve system, and having to respond to this. So um, they have they have a schedule. Um, his teachers are teaching largely through Zoom. Um, they also have a um, course management system they use online for submitting assignments, and so um, you know he gets up. Um, he has breakfast. He jumps um, actually usually either in the living room or in the kitchen um, online and he works with his teacher and his uh, colleagues and then he wraps up for the day, does his homework and it's kind of like a normal day. Yeah, I just heard from like other staff members who are parents and, you know, it just seems like uh, extra duties that, that they have to do depending on like what school they are and what district they're part of and, you know, how structured I guess the classes are. Just we're fortunate that his school has always had an online system. Um, their faculty picked up on this pretty quickly. Um, he has a laptop computer. We have good internet. So um, we're able to navigate that a little easier than I think some other folks may be able to. Now, we've known each other for a few years. And you're kind of known as the the person who preps his emails early morning and then sends them out later in the morning to, to staff uh, for any... Uh, responses or requests uh, that need to be made. So where does that come from? Is that a management thing? Is that a Craig thing? Both? It's it's actually both my father and I were early risers. Um, Even when I was a little kid, I used to wake up super early before school um, so I could go downstairs and watch cartoons um, and then have breakfast and then get ready and go to school. And then Saturday mornings, I wanted to get up before the first cartoon hit. Um, And so it's just been a habit of mine to be an early riser. Um, Even now, I find I still get up pretty early. Um, I like the quiet. Um, it's usually just me and sometimes me and the dog. Um, and I find I just get a lot of work done and I can knock out in a couple of hours, um, what would normally take me, you know, half a day to do. So, um, I've always been an early riser and I find it really productive time for me. Everyone has to find that zone of morning, afternoon, or evening that they're really productive. And for me, it's always been morning. Yeah. I would have to agree that, uh, morning probably is for me as well. Um, I, I've been on the side of getting your uh, 6am emails. But it, but it let me know that that you were you were active at that time, and then uh, usually we were both at work pretty early, so it was always nice. And what I miss is uh, having our Starbucks meetings. Yeah, because you were always on campus very early as well. <laughs> um, you and I and a couple others were usually the first on. Um, and yeah, I had my six o'clock rule, meaning um, even though I prepared the emails earlier or maybe the night before, um, I wouldn't send anything until after six just to feel like it was a little too weird for people. Yeah, because I, I think I read somewhere uh, where if uh, supervisors or managers, administrators, um, you know, if they send emails like over the weekend or uh, late at night, then some staff might feel there's an expectation that you need to get it done right then and there versus waiting until your work hours. Yeah. And I've always tried to let staff know, you know, again, just because you get it early or late doesn't mean you need to respond to it. And I think the morning one helps because they're all busy getting ready, dealing with families, getting on the commute. Um, so I think there's less pressure when it goes at night. I think staff sort of feels an obligation to stop what they're doing and have to respond to it. And I didn't want to leave them with that. Yeah. Well, definitely appreciate that. Now, last December, uh, we recorded a short interview Um together. And this was, of course, pre-pandemic times. And we had discussed your research and interest in emotional intelligence and and your excitement returning back to teaching um, this fall semester. So right now, let's take a listen uh, to that. And when we return, we'll chat more with you. So here we go. (music) 
one of the things you do with your research is on emotional intelligence. What exactly is that and why is that important to you? Well, thanks, Matt. Um, emotional intelligence, I got interested in it early on in my doctoral career. And there's lots of different models, measures, and methods to it and assumptions. But some of the core areas around emotional intelligence is the idea of being more self-reflective, um, being more empathetic to others, um, being able to manage yourself in different contexts, and then be able to manage and enhance relationships. And those core components tend to be in most of the different models and measures. And the reason it's so important is when we look at organizations, you have sort of a threshold level um, series of knowledge, skills, and abilities and capacities to be able to perform. Um, and if you think of the analogy, say, of, a, of an athlete, you have sort of your weekend warriors, you have sort of semi-professional, and then you have truly professional um, athletes. And at each of those different levels, you have to have a certain threshold levels of skills in order to be able to compete. But what we find is once you meet the threshold, the question is what separates um, say, an average performer from a superstar performer. And in that case, the knowledge, skills, and abilities aren't as big a differentiator as these other intangible qualities often relating to the emotional realm. And that's where EI or emotional intelligence comes in, is that that concept of being able to regulate yourself and regulate others tends to put you in an advantage to be more successful regardless of the occupation. How would someone uh, use emotional intelligence and maybe academic advising and teaching the workplace? Well, in particular, um, for advising, um, you know, if you have an advisor that's more um, aware of how they might be reacting, so a student may come in and you may have certain stereotypes about certain students and being more reflective will allow you to sort of work through those or be mindful of those. Um, students are often going to dump um, a lot of information in front of you. And so being empathetic and being able to tease out what's really going on for the student, how does it feel from their perspective, given what they may have gone through in order to be able to get into an advising session. Um, managing yourself, managing your demeanor. Um, one of the things we teach in sort of clinical or counseling is being able to mirror the person you're working with because that allows you to then sort of raise the level of energy if you need to, but more importantly, decrease the level of energy. And there's some tricks to that um, that can really help in the counseling session or an advising session. And then the relationship management, being able to help students, mentor them, guide them, and get them to take action. And so those are some of the underlying characteristics that EI or emotional intelligence lend itself that really would focus as well on advising, but also a whole host of careers. I think that's just great advice all around, just talking, working with people, right? Um, so you talked about students and teaching. Um, so I hear that you're going to be teaching in fall 2020. Uh, we go from quarter to semester. Are you excited about that? Yeah, I'm thrilled, actually. Um, one of the reasons I'm moving back from an administrative role to the um, faculty role is to be back in the classroom. I, I miss the classroom. Um, I love working with the students. Um, I love being able to teach. I love being able to um, share some of the knowledge and the experiences. And then I teach an area in organizational behavior and human resources that I find really applicable. And I find in, my, in the past, students really resonate with the concepts because they can see how this might play out for them and the benefits. And I'm also hoping to, some of the things I've learned as an administrator and working with the staff is not just the core content, um, but also looking at things that might help students navigate their careers and their majors within the context. So things like advising, career service services, some of the resources that are available to students. So I'm, I'm hoping to bring a whole comprehensive approach to teaching that maybe is a little different than what I did before.
So in your interview, you talked about emotional intelligence, how we can tease out, get to the underlying issues. How can we do that now with a, a virtual environment? You know, because most of our appointments are, you know, by Zoom or Skype, phone, email even. And if it's Zoom or Skype or some visual type of technology, we kind of just see people in a box and don't only get to maybe see a certain portion of them. So conceptually, it's still the same concept. Um, you know, being able to recognize and manage your emotions and the emotions of others. But you're right. It's harder now and it requires a lot more self-discipline um, and not overreacting. We've all gotten those emails that we read and we read into a tone that may not exist. And all of a sudden you're sending all cap responses to somebody and then you find out later that that was not their intent at all, that they didn't. Um, and so it requires much more being cautious about reading into intent. Um, you know, we like to be able to draw intentions out of people, um, but now the cues just aren't the same and it's much harder. Um, you know, when you're in a room, you pick up not just the face, but the physical, the emotive, um, and it just doesn't come through, particularly with email and even in something like Zoom. So you just have to be able to take a step back, not read into intent, or clarify intent if that's a concern for yours. Um, but the underlying issues of being able to manage those emotions is not only still important, but even more so now because everyone is dealing with this added stress. You know, people are scared. People are worried about getting sick. People about we're worried about getting their, um, you know, their families engaged in this. Um, like you said, people are home, which is a whole different issue because now you're having to manage your, you know, your children and your pets while normally you'd be at work. And so, um, it's just an added burden for everybody. So being a little more patient, taking a little more time and trying to clarify intent is as important, if not more important than ever before. And it's funny, as you were talking about that, uh, listeners won't be able to see it, but then your dog almost seemed like he, he wanted a lot of attention right there. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely was ready for playtime at that point. And again, we have to roll with it because you'll see individuals now, um, faculty, staff, and students who, you know, they're going to have to deal with stuff that normally they would they'd be in class and all that would be right. removed. And there's going to be distractions and you have to be able to allow for that. Now, you're also uh, going back into teaching in the fall. And we kind of heard that from uh, the interview that we just played. But before we kind of go into that, can we maybe go into the past? And can you talk about your path into teaching and academic advising? Well, um, you know, in terms of teaching, the reality is I got fired. Um, <laughs> I was working for a firm, um, and uh, this is back when the economy was not doing so well after the dot-com, and um, my and a friend of mine suggested that, you know what, based on your experience and what you're interested in doing, you should look into this whole issue of academia. And so I applied, um, and it actually was very serendipitous that um, I was actually laid off, and then a couple weeks later, I got my acceptance into doctoral program. Um, but I, I've always liked to teach, even when I was working before, um, doing professional development, working with clients. Um, I really enjoyed the people aspect, not in the sales, but to sort of figure out where they were, where they were going, um, and how I could potentially help them on their journey. Um, and then when I went into my doctoral program, really found that I, I enjoyed being in the classroom. Um, I, I'm not shy about being in public spaces, um, although I'm an introvert by nature. Um, I find I'm very comfortable um, public speaking and always have been. And so it's a natural venue for me to be able to be in front of students. And then when I got particularly here um, at Cal State, 
the opportunity to work with students on a much deeper level and talking about things outside of class in terms of what are their majors and their minors? Can they go to graduate school? Um, do they need this degree or that degree? Um, and kind of helping them sort of open their eyes to a broader world um, that maybe they hadn't really thought about, the opportunities and the experiences. And so I started working um, actually with our own L.A. Galt um, in terms of advising, doing workshops and sessions. And then I found myself camping down there a little more often and working with students and tried to learn the general education and certainly learn our curriculum. And I found I was good at helping students. And so that's always carried over for me um, in my work. And you mentioned Ellie Galt. Um you know the Ellie Galt story about her uh, helping me during freshman advising day? Actually, I don't know if I know that one, Matt. I did the middle college program. So since I was still high school, I had to go to freshman advising day. And I was the most like shyest person probably there. And I was supposed to be... And I kind of mentioned this in one of the previous episodes, but I'll mention it again because I like this story. Um, so I was supposed to be part of the EOP group the whole day. And they put me with the math group because I was a math major at that time. So when I get there and they put me with the math group, I just thought they made a simple change and that's how it was. But then throughout the day, I kind of figured, well, maybe I should ask someone because I have this letter from EOP saying I was supposed to be with the EOP group. <laughs> and of course, I get the courage to uh, to ask at the very end when I'm already registered, done with classes or done with the, the orientation. So I'm walking out of uh, Jack Brown Hall and there's Ellie and it's over. She's trying to direct people to where to go to the parking lot and leave. And I go like, excuse me, I had this letter and it says I'm supposed to be part of EOP, but I was with the math group. In my mind, I think I'm making sense. I think I was just speaking gibberish at that point. But um, she reads the letter and then she's trying to figure out, put the pieces together. And then she's like, well, you might want to try to go to University Hall where EOP is at and maybe see if they're still there. So you kind of know where Jack Brown is like trying to direct someone to UH. You have all these trees in the way and yes. it's further out. So <laughs> she's, trying to, right, she's trying to explain where it's at. And then she realizes it and she probably sees like this scared look on my face and then says, how about this? Let me go walk you over to University Hall. So she walks me from Jack Brown to University Hall, which is not necessarily like a short walk. And she ends up uh, taking me um, outside of UH and says, okay, it's gonna be on the third floor. But as you know, because you used to work on the third floor of UH, it's confusing with the rooms. So uh, she's trying to explain how to get there and then realizes, well, I should probably take it to the stairwell that's by the Student Services with Disabilities office. That will probably be easier. So she takes me there. And decides to walk me up like two and a half flights of the stairs and then tells me, you know, hey, I think you can get the rest of the way. It's just right around the corner. Um, and luckily, EOP was there. They still helped me. But Ellie, yeah, she was she was uh, my little angel uh, that day. And it's the walking there. Yeah. That's the difference. And so this is something Ellie's done. This is something I found myself doing. You know, I try to start directions with students and they get this glassy eyed look. I'm like, all right, let me just take you. Um, But that's what we have to do in this new environment. You know, find ways online with Zoom and email to walk students there because Mm -hmm. that's what's going to make the difference. Yeah. And it's kind of using like any little aspect of it. So like, let's say, for example, Zoom, uh, not that Zoom sponsoring uh, adventures and advising, but, um, (laughs) you know, we can share our screen and show them exactly what we're looking at. Here's the website. Here's your transcript. Here's your um, your audit. Uh, we can use the chat function and put our um, links in there, phone numbers, chat in there. So like there's so many different things or to follow up with an email, you know, so different aspects of it. But I definitely agree with that. Now, um, as many institutions recently over the last few months had to kind of scramble to move instruction and services online, 
from faculty that maybe you've spoken to or had to work with, what was it like for them during, uh, for us, because we're on the quarter system and a lot of it took effect, you know, pretty much for winter quarterfinals because that was up in the air till like almost the day or two before finals. Like, what was it like for them kind of trying to get everything to be online and the beginning of the spring quarter navigating this whole virtual side? It's been challenging. Um, it really has been. Um, I- I'm prepping a course that I'm going to be teaching this summer, um, but I had the luxury of six months of planning. And that's about how long it takes to do an effective online course is to have about six months of lead time to be able to put all the pieces together. Faculty had, um, in some cases, days notice that they had to teach online and some had very little experience. Now in our college, um, we have an online MBA, um, we've had online resources and we've had online programs. So a lot of our faculty are at least familiar or have done courses online in the past. So it's been a little easier, I think, for them. But I I was talking to one of our lecturers. He's a lawyer. He's never taught online before. He comes in and he lectures for two hours and he walks out of the room and he's like, what, how do I do this? Um, what am I going to do with this? Um, so we've really had to hit the ground running with a lot of faculty on very quickly pivoting um, how they teach and using things like Zoom. And what I've been telling faculty is you don't have to dramatically change what you're already doing because you don't have that six months lead time of planning. Um, so lean into yourself find one or two technologies like Zoom or a discussion board that you're comfortable with or willing to learn and just roll with that Um, rather than the full-blown design I might expect if somebody had time to prep the course. Now, longer term, we now know that fall is going to be largely online with maybe a few exceptions. And there's a good chance even spring, maybe, there's been no decisions. Um, But if you have a student who, say, is in a high-risk group, or is taking care of others, you're going to have to have some online options for that person, whether it's teaching or whether it's um, in, in student support services. So faculty are always now going to have to consider what's an online option if somebody can't come. So in that regard, if you're planning to do a lecture or an assignment, um, think about maybe the long term. And is it worth maybe a little more upfront on your time now to be able to save that time later because you can reuse that lecture, you can reuse that assignment. Um, So again, it's lean in, one to two items at a time, play to your strengths. Um, The other issue that I've been talking to faculty with and has been very prevalent, you have to respond. Um, You know, before you could sort of walk into a class and go, all right, I'll deal with it next week. Students aren't going to wait a week, and that's just not the new normal. And you'll find that issues will quickly spiral out of control. So one thing that does have to change, faculty have to get used to pretty much every day, um, at least some response. No more than 24 to 48 hours um, should you let a student linger. Even if it's a quick, let me get back to you later, or let's set up an appointment, but you have to respond. So the response finding one to two technology and thinking long-term are really what we've been trying to work with faculty going into this new normal. When I've been talking with students um, in appointments, uh, what I do like uh, is that a lot of the faculty are being really straight up and honest uh, with their students in terms of, hey, I've taught online before, so you know we're kind of used to this. Or for the most part, it almost seems I've never taught online before. This is my first time doing it. And um, there are some instructors that some of the students have said that kind of have been changing things on the fly, depending on what works or what doesn't. And they've been really getting a lot of the student feedback on it to be able to make the class as best as possible online. So it seems like a lot of students have been very appreciative of that as well. 
it's great when you have a good faculty that can navigate that space for you. Um, and as you mentioned, they're doing this on the fly to the best of their ability um, without having any additional compensation or any additional time to be able to, to put this together. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not a faculty, so I didn't know about, you know, that sometimes these classes can take like six months to really prep and, and really, you know, put it all together. Um, you know, so I know for our spring quarter, we started a week later to give faculty an additional week, which in my, week. Yeah, <laughs> which in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, great, that's enough time. But now it makes so much more sense. <laughs> Even on it, because we have um, like a one week spring break. So we would tell faculty coming on a quarter system because we used to have three quarters. Um, don't use spring break to plan for your spring because you, it's not enough time. You have to plan your spring in fall. Because you just don't, and that's on a face-to-face leveraging things that they already know how to do. And now they're in a new environment. So that requires even more time to get it right. And speaking of students, so I, I guess for students, what would you see as maybe some of the barriers for online learning? And with that, are there any ways we can help? Whether that be from an advisor helping a student, faculty teaching the class, or the institution as a whole? I think one of the big concerns for students is recognizing the technology and the bandwidth issue. Um, and even faculty, quite frankly, who, who at this point are not really allowed to come back on campus. Um, I have faculty colleagues who don't have great internet. Um, they don't have good home offices. They don't have all the technology. Um, and they have resources. So imagine a student who may be sharing a house. Um, they may have family members. They may not have a private space to go to. They may not have a good computer. They may not have good Wi-Fi. Um, so it's really hard, I think, for students to understand or not to understand, but to have the technology they need to do this right. And normally, you know, if we're in a normal situation, they go to the computer lab, they come on campus and use those resources. And now those resources are no longer available to them. Um, so being mindful of the technology, um, both, you know, for students to see what they can do, but also for faculty to understand that students may not have the best and brightest. Um, you know, they may not have the latest technology. Um, so some of the cool things you can do online you may need to be able to consider what's a low bandwidth going to do here and are they going to be able to take that exam or are they going to be able to view that video um you know and then not to even not to mention even going into some of the issues with disabilities and, and accessibility so being mindful of the technology limitations that students are having um being mindful of their time um you know some classes are still going to run the same days and times but again everybody's dealing with the same issue. They may have kids, they may have parents, they may have family, they may have work responsibilities, and all of a sudden that's going to start intruding. So being flexible on assignments, being flexible on delivery, um, being flexible on the technology, and then one of the big things is finding as many different ways to do the same thing. Um, so for example, I've had a chance to plan and prepare, but my course, you know, there will be PowerPoints. We'll be using voice threads. There'll be live Zooms, although they're not going to be required. Those Zooms will be recorded so students can view them later. I'll be available during office hours. You have to give them as many different opportunities to interface with you as the instructor and you in the class. And normally, maybe you wouldn't do that, but now you really have to. As many options as possible. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process 
and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, and I know it's been mixed reactions with, with students that I've met with. You know, some love that it's online. They're like, hey, I don't need to commute to school. I don't need to pay for my parking pass. I like this, uh, that my instructors let me kind of work at my own pace. Or, you know, some like that they have to zoom in on the day and time of class because it gives them some sort of structure similar to how it would have been on campus. But then just like you're saying with some of the resources or like the bandwidth issue, um, I have students that, you know, live in a household and they have like their siblings and their parents and they're at a point where they have to kind of schedule times that really people, you know, their family members can use the internet because they need to zoom for their class or zoom for their appointment with me. Um, while others have gone into their car to get away from, you know, the, the, the noise and, 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 and everything. Um, so it's just really just been mixed with, with, with every student. And it's so different with it, each student that we talk to. And part of it is normally with online learning, you have a certain student that knows what they're signing up for. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for us particularly, it's been mostly in our graduate program, but they, they know what they're getting in for. Um, and those are working professionals. They have the opportunity to eat that time out. Um, for students now, this was not their choice. And I'll be honest, faculty would love to be back on campus. Um, even my son, even though um, his classes end a lot sh- quicker and he kind of has more free time than he did before, he, he and his friends would all rather be back in school. Um, so everyone would rather be back on campus um, and then have an option for online rather than not being on campus and online is the only option. And then there's even like the, the work issue where, you know, some that have lost their jobs, but others that their hours have increased dramatically because they're considered an essential employee. And so now they're having odd work hours. And even if they try to maybe reschedule them, it's really tough to do that with their supervisors. And now it's time to balance work and school and family life and everything. And everything just mixes together. Yeah, it's much more challenging now than I think it was before. But, you know, we talked about some of the barriers. Uh, Do you believe that there are any, like, benefits for the online instruction? Actually, there are. Um, as someone who, who taught online before all this happened, I found that teaching online made me a better instructor, even on a face-to-face environment. And I think having online resources available for students, regardless of whether you're teaching fully online or you're teaching face-to-face, is so much better. Um, students want access to the information. They want access to the resources. Um, there's some really amazing things you can do online. Um, discussion boards is a good tool. Um, so, for example, if I'm leading a lecture, sometimes it's easy for students to sort of hide, especially if it's a larger class. But with a discussion board, they can't hide. They have to respond. Um, and so I really get a sense of where everybody's at all the time, which is something I didn't always get when I was teaching face-to-face until there was an exam or some other assessment. Um, so in that sense, I think it's great. And having the resources, the flexibility, um, what I'll do is I'll do common um, assignment deadlines where everything's due at a certain time at midnight. Um, and it provides an opportunity for students to kind of leverage based on their experience, what they want to do first and what they want to do later. So there's a lot of benefits to online learning. And a good online class is an amazing experience for students. And I think even those who go back to -to face-to-face when this is all over and never want to teach online ever again, I still think they will be better instructors for having done this. And I think our students will become better students and more self-motivated and take more responsibility than if this hadn't happened. 
100% agree. Now, in your last interview uh, that we were playing, you talked about missing the classroom and being with the students. And I think you were planning on having maybe possibly a hybrid course for the fall term. So now that the CSU Chancellor's Office has sort of stated that more than likely fall is going to be online, although there's no official word yet uh, from CSUSB, um, how does this change up your setup? And um, so if you are planning to have it hybrid, now it's going to be all online. You know, what resources can faculty use uh, and get support? for this. So, yes, um, you know, I'll admit I'm disappointed. Um, I was excited to teach um, the hybrid course, particularly it was at our um, our other campus in Palm Desert, and just to be able to continue to connect with them. So um, I'm really disappointed I won't have that opportunity to be in the face-to-face environment. Um, having said that, um, it's not that hard to take a hybrid class fully online. Um, I already have most of the architecture and, and the pieces for it to do so. Um, it will make it more flexible. Um, I don't have to commute. They don't have to commute. Um, and we'll have some more flexibility on assignments. Um, in terms of resources, depends on the campus, but in our campus in particular, um, we have Academic Technologies and Innovations, which is a wonderful group with a bunch of um, experienced designers that can help faculty go through the process. We have our Teaching Resource Center that also um, has a, a wealth of resources available to assist. So there's a lot of information for online. One of the hard parts about all this, though, is there's almost too much. And so you can spend years um, going through all the literature on all the different tools and techniques to teach online, and it gets very quickly overwhelming. And again, you have to still do the work at the end of the day, um, which is, you know, building the course, building the content, building the assessments. Um, so again, finding those one to two things that you're willing to try um, is going to be critically important because it can be overwhelming. But there's a lot of resources to help faculty um, continue to support their online learning going into next year. And you kind of touched upon... Uh... Um, you know, helping out some of the faculty, listening to some of the issues that they were having. Do you have any advice that you would give your colleagues in, in, if they're teaching in summer and or the fall, um, if fall does end up being fully online, uh, or at least mostly online regarding structuring their classes, but also more importantly, uh, engaging their students? So part of it is a good um, basic design. So you know, it's not just throwing up your presentations on Blackboard. Um, which is our management system. Um, you really need to be able to structure what is it that you expect students to do and how are they going to navigate that? Um, so, you know, really crisp design elements, you know, having like a get started or start here section, overviewing, you know, how you've laid the course out and where you go. Normally in a face-to-face, we do this when we go through the syllabus. So we have that first couple of hours, we go through the syllabus, we talk about all of this. But in an online, that's not always feasible. So now you have to sort of take that two-hour conversation and figure out how is your architecture set up so it's really easy for students to navigate your course. Um, The other things is announcements, um, doing at least weekly, if not biweekly announcements, telling them this is what's due. This is the resources. This is what I'm expecting. Um, You have to constantly communicate with students every week in order for them to stay on track. So the overall design and the communication are critically important to be successful in an online environment. You know, we've talked about faculty and a little bit about like student barriers and, you know, successes or, um, you know, benefits of online instruction. But from a student standpoint, do you have any advice for students on approaching their classes, um, especially our new students coming in for the fall term? Especially if, you know, because sometimes we'll hear in in appointments where a student will say that, you know, online is not for me. 
Um, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, and, and actually, it's funny because I've had a couple of students who could been forwarded to me and I've responded back to and that there's some concerns. Um, the first thing I would ask or recommend to students is think about your long-term plan. Um, you may not be in a position to defer your education because this is likely to be the new normal, at least for a term, if not a year or more. So unless you're willing to take a year or two off of education, unfortunately, you're going to have to adjust to online. Um, and so I encourage students to, to think seriously about continuing, even though it may be suboptimal for them, um, to stick with it. The other thing is, you know, just as your faculty should need to be patient with you, you have to be patient with your faculty because so many of them, this was not what they signed up for. <laughs> this was not the job that they had accepted. Um, and they are doing the best they can to be able to deal with this environment. Um, you know, the other thing is um, the learning responsibility. Again, we talked about this before is on the student. So yes, it's great when you have an instructor that can get you motivated, but that's not all the instructors, even on face to face. And again, the content is the content and it's largely the same, regardless of what institution you go to. Um, you know, accounting is accounting. Management is a management. Theater arts, theater arts. So, um, you know, being able to pick that content up and being a little self-motivated as a learner and taking responsibility is going to be important. It is okay to provide suggestions to faculty. In fact, I build in my course multiple surveys um, throughout the course, asking them questions. Are we meeting the learning goals? What things should I change? What should I do differently? What should I keep? What's working and what isn't working? Because that's just how I structure my classes. But it's okay to reach out to faculty and make some suggestions. But please be respectful. Understand that they have a lot of other things going on, not just teaching the course. They still have their research. They have their service. They have other parts of their job. They may or may not be in a position to make those changes, but it's always okay to respectfully request that, hey, if we did this, it would help me out. Is this something we could do? Um, so be active in the learning. Take some responsibility. Be a partner in this. And again, it may be suboptimal times, but I would say engage this new normal now because it would be worse, I think, to wait a year or two. You haven't moved forward in your degree while you're waiting for all of this to shake out. And we don't know how this is all going to shake out long term. I think with a lot of students, they, they might be intimidated to talk their, to their faculty or to recommend, you know, make a request. And, it, you know, we tell students all the time, especially during orientation, like always talk to your instructors. But, you know, I think it's just, you know, up to them kind of getting that courage to do it and just really understanding that they're humans, too. And if, if we don't make suggestions to them or talk to them, they may just continue doing the way they're doing and not know that they might be able to change it up because someone may not be understanding something. A lot of us are looking for suggestions, and sometimes we don't know from the student's yeah. perspective how things are being perceived, and that's good information for us as faculty. Somehow, I think it connects, uh, but Michael Harrison, who you know, great uh, presenter, he was telling me that, you know, because a lot of times if you go and present, a lot of times after your presentation, people ask, oh, how'd it go? And you hear people go, oh, it went well. But Michael never says that. He says, well, based off of what the uh, audience said, this is what they said. I think it went well. Cause he's like, we could think we're doing the best job ever up on stage or in the classroom, but it's all about, well, what does the student think or what does the audience think? And what are they, are they understanding what I'm trying to tell them? Is it, is the communication there? So it's all dependent on, in this case, the, the student. Yes. And again, we, it's nice to get the accolades, 
But even in Michael's case, I think he would rather almost have, please tell me what I need to do differently next time. Right. Yeah. Because it's always like, how can I do better next time? And unless someone tells me, then I'll just still do it the same way. (laughs) And there's some things I've done as an instructor where I've gotten feedback from students and I'm like, yes, but that's what I intended. Um, So I'm going to do it again. Um, It's intentional. And there's other times where I'm like, okay, well, that wasn't what I intended. And so if that's not coming out right, then I need to make a change. But it's, again, Mm -hmm. it's always okay to make the ask. Just do it professionally Um, and do it politely. Definitely. Eventually, we will hopefully be back on campus at some point. Hopefully, maybe spring quarter or spring semester, now that we will be on semesters. What are your thoughts on eventually transitioning students back to campus so that you have current students that are in this online format? I guess I should say we're on, you know, on campus, then went to online for spring, maybe online for fall, hopefully back on campus for spring semester. There's that transition back. And then there are the students that are starting out that will probably start out online and then eventually be back on campus. How do we, how do you envision that going? I actually, it's an interesting question, Matt, because I, I think we're going to see um, reverse culture shock. Mm-hmm. I, I really do because students, even if they, they're not fans of online learning, having had that flexibility, um, having had all of the content of a course available to them readily. Because sometimes they don't. You know, you go into a traditional classroom and the faculty may intentionally say, I'm not going to share the PowerPoints. I'm not sharing the presentations. You come to class, you learn, you take your notes, and you take your exams. Mm-hmm. Um, so now going from I have all this information to not having this information, I had all this flexibility to not having this flexibility. And it's not going to be just the students. Faculty also are going to be like, well, do I have to be on campus for that? Office hours apparently can be on Zoom, so I can be home. I don't have to be in my office to do it. And then we're going to see a real issue with staff. You know, our policy has been not to allow telecommuting on campus. Um, Now, all of a sudden, everybody has to. So how do you tell staff you all have to be here from 8 to 5 in this location um, when they're like, well, I was perfectly capable of doing my job and did it really well when I had flexibility. So I really think we're going to experience a lot of culture shock coming back to a campus environment. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're looking over my shoulder. I have to be here. Well, how come I had flexibility before? So, um, and don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm really thrilled to have the opportunity to get back to campus. <laughs> I really would like that. Um, and I'm hoping though, but I think there's going to be a change. Yeah. I think for staff, students, and faculty, we will never quite be the same. And hopefully we'll learn some really good lessons of some things that quite frankly, we can trust each other with. And some things quite frankly, can be done online just as effectively as it can be done face to face. Well, it's funny you say that because that was a thought I was having a few weeks ago was when we're back on campus, I mean, the fact that we were able to move everything to be able to work remotely and not have to be on campus as staff members, are people going to request not having to go to campus or do we do a skeleton crew uh, and we just like have certain days we're on campus and other days that we're working from home? Because honestly, like the first two weeks that we were working remotely, like I thought I couldn't handle it. And there were a couple of days I ended up going back to work just to be in the office. And then I got, yeah. uh, now I'm like, I've adapted. And in a way, I kind of like it, but I am, I, I do want to be back on campus for that student interaction. But uh, yeah, the question uh, it keeps coming to my mind is, will, can it really go back to that normal or where there'll be differences in, in uh, staff hours and uh, who works on campus and who doesn't? Well, think of advising. I mean, right now, you know, before students may have to make an extra trip just to come into an advising session or any student success service that they wouldn't have to take advantage of. Now, all of a sudden, 
why do I have to come on? Why do I have to spend an hour commuting to get there when I can just do it now and save myself that time? Or I can batch a bunch of appointments together, which I couldn't do before. So I think there's going to be a, a difference in how we approach work. Yeah, I mean, especially if we are online for fall, which again, it seems like more than likely we will. Yeah. I mean, like John Noriega and I are already talking about, well, how do we handle our two and four year pledge orientations? So thinking about orientation is a really good example. And one of the things we can do in the classroom. So when you do orientation, you'll have a group of students come in, you know, and when we do international, maybe a smaller group, 20, 30, when you're doing the, the big freshmen, you know, you're doing three, 400 students at a time. But there's no connection in the sense that, are they getting, I mean, it's just as easy for them to show up and sleepwalk through a day of orientation. With online, if you build in some of the assessments or discussions, they sort of have to respond. They sort of have, it's like going through those, you know, driving tutorials we have to do for the university every couple of years. Um, and in some cases, sort of annoying, although I learned a couple of tips every once in a while that might help me. No comment on that for me. But you have to at least pay some attention because you have to sure. pass the test. Sure. Um, so I think that there's some real advantages that we're not getting. Yeah. And yeah, because I was thinking too, like when, when John and I were talking about, well, when we had the in-person orientations, you know, students will come up afterwards for questions. And it's like, well, you could have you know them stay on the call, but they may not feel comfortable because a lot of them, they want to wait until everyone's kind of gone until they have more of that one-on-one yeah. -on -one with you. And because it's really a personal question that's, you know, for them as an individual. So there is going to be a, you know, a lot that we missed out on. Um, but yeah. you're still going to need some kind of connection to the students and some kind of visual. And, and we talked about this at the beginning, or you mentioned, you know, again, Zoom is great or whatever, you know, system you're using, but it's not the same as being in the office and picking up all the cues. Um, you know, when I would work with students, you know, from when they came into the office and they sat down and how they looked and how they were feeling. And some of that just doesn't come across very well. Um, so we'll miss a lot of that richness. But having said that, a lot of stuff can be a lot more efficient than, than before. So to end this on maybe a, a more positive note that has nothing to do with online classes or institutions or anything like that, uh, you've been my my go-to for giving me the updates on the latest shows to watch. I mean, you got me into Game of Thrones, um, got me into Umbrella Academy. What what am I what am I missing now? Um, Clone Wars, the last four episodes, I will say, not not the first eight, but the last four episodes of the last season were simply phenomenal i mean <laughs> they were amazing well worth the wait and and were um incredible um so really enjoyed those a lot um my son and i are watching um lock and key right now really enjoying it we got the final two episodes tonight so we'll uh, we're really excited to catch those but that's been a really great series as well um so clone wars and lock and key are the two uh, bread and butter for us right now nice and then i'll be waiting for season two of umbrella academy and uh and Doom Patrol. Doom Patrol, yes. And uh, whenever Picard decides to have season two. Apparently there's going to be another one. They're going to spin off um, Pike. Nice. So I didn't hear about that. So uh, if you didn't hear, you just heard it first from Craig Seal. Yes, they're going to do the original Enterprise with Captain Pike. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for being on, on this interview and, and you, kind Matt. of doing this impromptu interview because we, we did this interview back in December and now we're... You know, it, it was so much has changed since we did that interview. And I feel like there was so much more that we needed to talk about. And I feel like we got that done in this interview. So thank you again, Craig. Happy to help, man. Thank you. 
Um, it's interesting listening to this interview over two years after hearing us talk about virtual learning and technology and just how so much has changed but stayed the same, if you know what I mean, but also how much we've learned and are still navigating a changing student culture, student learning, and the lessons learned from the pandemic. So next up is Monica Polito, also from May of 2020. So here we go. Uh, this is an interview that I recorded with Monica a few months ago. So I think it was back in February. So this is kind of pre-pandemic times. And Monica, she's an administrative support assistant in the Student Assistance in Learning Program, or SAIL program, as it's called. And so we talked to Monica about like what SAIL is, but mostly about her time as a student and after graduation, because one of the things that Monica presents on, aside from her other duties, is on money management and budgeting to undergraduate students. And I think that's a topic that's really important. And Monica, what's great about her with her presentations is she gives a lot of stories in terms of her time as a student. And, you know, in a way, kind of like mistakes that she's made and how she's learned from it. So this is actually, I think, great information. And it was really lovely to be able to interview Monica because she's such a wonderful person. And I'm glad that we were able to get this interview done before the whole COVID-19 situation. So let's go right into it. Monica, can you talk to us about SAIL, what the SAIL program is? Yes. So the SAIL program serves students who are first generation students with disabilities and also students who are low income. So underrepresented students. So our main focus is to help the students in their college career, making sure that they're on track for graduation, helping them the best as possible to have the main support services in our program to continue forward for their future career. Nicely put. And not only do you work in SAIL, but you also were previously a SAIL student, right? Correct. Yes, I was. Now, do you feel that the SAIL program helped you? Most definitely. My counselor was Brenda Louise. She was amazing. She helped me my last year and a half. That's when I started in sale. I wish I would have found it sooner. I was also part of EOP as well. So EOP helped me my first year and a half. Well, my first two years, actually. So having both programs as a support system definitely did help me succeed in my career. So you had two different programs. So sale, but also EOP. Different programs, but some of it kind of overlaps and, and, and is similar in a way. Do you feel that helped you having both those programs? Were there any like crossover where it felt like it was redundant? I think both programs offer their own specialties, and that was the neat part of it. So you have your counselor in sale, and you also have your counselor in EOP. So each one gives you like advice and stuff. Although it may be same, it's like different. So it's like different support, but also it connects in the best way possible. That's really nicely put. Awesome. Because I was part of EOP. I didn't get a chance to be part of sale. Um, but uh, everything you're saying about EOP and sale, like that I've heard from other students, is that's an awesome program, both awesome programs. And they definitely help students. I know for me, like my counselor was Carolyn Stevens. Um, shout out to Carolyn, now at Alabama State. But she really helped me out during my time, especially a first gen student and kind of feeling lost when I got here. And she made sure I was on top of everything and is always following up. So she was like a second mom to me. <laughs> but also shout out to Brenda, your counselor from SAIL. I hope she's doing well. And she's always missed here at Cal State San Bernardino. Now, when you were a student, we first met when you were a student, like in like your last year, you actually presented um, at my class for uh, University Studies 200. And that presentation was on what? Money management, financial literacy, money management. 
And I think from that start, you you presented, and I was like, wow, Monica is amazing. Like everyone was amazing <laughs> in there, but you had like so many stories that I think resonated with, with students. So even once you graduated and you were working for the sale program and the sale program wasn't necessarily doing the money management uh, presentations anymore. I know I talked with your boss and I was like, hey, can uh, Monica still present? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. So she volunteered you. <laughs> so every term you came, came in and presented to my class. What are some tips that you might be able to give students that are trying to save money? And I know one of the stories you gave was the cup of noodle story. Oh, yes. So the famous cup of noodle story, some students may know on campus, those that were here in 2015, 2016, and 2017, I did present to like the population of, that were just coming in. So like the incoming freshmen. So my thing was, my when I started in 2011, I was a first-gen student, low income. I had no idea what taking care of finances was. I mean, I didn't have like $100 to my name at a time or even $10 if I was lucky. So coming in and I saw the comma in my bank account, I was like, I'm rich. I thought like money was inevitable. I could just get it anytime. But I wasn't thinking logically. I didn't have a job. I couldn't support myself financially. My mom couldn't support me because she didn't have a job. So it's she's a stay-at-home mom, so she was trying her best. But then Monica decided to just splurge. And like my first month, I spent it at the mall. I spent it going out. It's just like, you know, my friends are like, oh, can you help me with this? I got you. Like I was just <laughs> spending it like it was like I won the lottery or something. But then the end of the first month, I was broke. I had no money. I was left to myself. I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm living on campus. I have so many support services, but what am I going to do? So I just lived on cup of noodles. I gained the freshman 15 or the freshman 20s, I call it, because I wasn't <laughs> taking care of myself physically either. So I continued that. And then the next quarter, I was like, I'll do better. Continue the same process. And then spring quarter, I was like, I'll do better. And then the same thing again. So I told students, if you learn anything, don't be like me. But I call myself the cup of noodles because that was my life at the time. <laughs> And it was definitely a, a. Not only did I think it resonated with students, you know, there was a humor in it, but I think they also got to see, like, wow, okay, Monica was just like me, and right, you know, right now, and okay, if this is what she's doing now, this is how she was able to take care of it and get out of that kind of, I guess, habit. Um, I can do that too, and here's how I can learn from it because Monica was able to do it, um, and and I know like that's a story that that you'll give in in each of the presentations each term uh, when I was teaching the class, and and I always looked forward to it because I was like this will be the story that <laughs> the students are really gonna gonna get, and they're gonna be able to remember this even like months and years later. <laughs> yeah. Now another example that you have is a cruise that you were on and you mentioned that uh, story to students during the presentation as another example of ways they, if they want to accomplish something or they have a goal, here's how you, you can do it, especially with money. <laughs> so it's called what's a SMART goal. So it's specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-framed. So making sure that the goal that you're going to accomplish is for you, not for anyone else outside of the group. So it's something that you want to accomplish. So I wanted to go to a cruise. I never thought growing up would be possible. Like I based my whole life on like movies and TV shows and everything. Like I want to go on a cruise. I was like, it's never gonna happen. Um, I don't have the financial the financial support. I don't have the finances to do so. Supporting a family at the age of nineteen, a family of six, it was difficult. But I was able to just be like, okay, Monica, you're gonna decrease spending on eating out because that was a huge one. <laughs> so with my first goal specific is like I want to go on a cruise. Measurable. It was measurable because I had to save enough money within like the amount of time that I got my paycheck. And then specific, measurable, achievable. It was achievable because I could go to a cruise. It was less than $300 for three days, which was nice. 
it was relevant because it was for me. And the time frame was I had to say at this month, I'm going to save this amount. The next month, I'll save that amount. And I was able to build it up. And I went to Ensenada, which is like super cool. <laughs> One of my best friends. And from then, that is going to live for me for like the rest of my life, knowing that I had the opportunity to excel in that kind of sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think since you were able to find such great prices for the cruises, I'm going to be coming to you as my travel agent, right? <laughs> but I just want to say thanks for everything, especially for, for my class being able to present. You always find the time to do it, and you don't have to. Oh. And the, just that my students should get so much out of it. And every time I come to the sale office, you're always had that smile on your face, always so energetic and encouraging. So even if I'm having a bad day, it's like, I know I can just go walk by sale, peek my head in, and then Monica will be there. But the days that you're not, I get down because I'm like, wait, where's Monica? <laughs> so, so thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, any tips that you have for, for students uh, just in general? Because I mean, you as a previous student, you've seen students essentially every day that come in through uh, into the sale office. Any extra tips, even aside from like money management, any success tips that, that you have that, that you've learned that you might be able to give to, to students? Definitely. I came in in 2011 not even thinking it was a possibility for me to graduate college, nonetheless graduate high school. I, was, I told students in the past that I wasn't going to graduate high school. I grew up in a very uh, troubled home. And in high school, I just in 11th grade, I said, I'm not going to graduate. Like, mom, I'm going to leave. The word she said was, I'm going to be disappointed in you. She said so many words to me, but disappointment was something I never wanted to do to my mom because she was like, my, she's my mom and dad. So from that point on, I said, you know what? I need to help my younger siblings be a role model, make sure I go to college and do the best that I can, regardless of how stressful life is. And that's the thing my mom always said growing up as being a little kid at five years old. She said, regardless of what's going on in our household, Monica, you go to school, you go to work and you smile, Regar like even from now into the future. So from then, it's like, if I'm not having a good day, however it is, I still want to make someone else have a good day. Just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean I'm going to put that upon someone else. So I try to just be as smiling, like happy for everyone because I know everyone goes through their own struggles. So regardless of your struggles that you're going through in life, it's only temporary. At that moment, growing up, I was like, this is going to be forever. But then at 19, all that disappeared. And now I'm going to be 27 years old in a couple months. And Life couldn't be any better than it was before. So it's just having the positive mentality of right now is not okay, but it's going to be okay. That's the main focus. Awesome. And before we were recording, Monica said, I'm only going to be 27, <laughs> which made me feel old because I'm going to be 36. So thank you, Monica, for that. <laughs> I know you're okay. I'm just joking. <laughs> but Monica... Always a pleasure, and I hope to have you on again so we can chat because I love your stories, love your energy and enthusiasm. You're an amazing person. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And last up are two interviews with graduate students at the time, Alanis Williams and Abby Weavers from University of South Dakota. This was very early in the podcast at episode three, which aired in February of 2020. Now, even though these interviews aired in 2020, I actually recorded these in December of 2019 when I visited the University of South Dakota. I was actually there on vacation, and I said it then, but we'll also say it again, and that's a shout out to Dr. Craig McGill from Kansas State University. At the time when I recorded this in 2019, Craig was working at the University of South Dakota and scheduled these interviews uh, for me with 
with his grad students. And then also on another episode, in episode nine, you can check out other interviews that he helps schedule with the various staff at USD with uh, Sherry Bussey, Brandon Hoford, April Lee, Brittany Schultz, and Jill Paulson. But with these two interviews, these are very short interviews. Alanis and Abby were on the clock. And if I can find the video, I'll post them on social media. I was in a hallway next to some stairs, but there was a nice USD backdrop. So that became a perfect place to record. So take a listen. And this first one that we have coming up is from Abby. Now, Abby is a graduate assistant who completed her degree in elementary and special education and is currently working on her graduate degree in psychology. So in this interview, she talks about being actually a nursing major before changing her major and her experience with her academic advisor. I'm here at University of South Dakota, and I'm with Abby. How are you doing? Good. So uh, we're going to ask you a few questions, something we've been asking some students. Um, So You've been both an undergrad and currently a graduate student here at USD. What do you like about USD? Um, for me, USD is it really just feels like home um, as far as like the professors and different faculty around USD. Um, there's there's always been super helpful in helping me out whenever I need it with anything, really. Perfect. And so as an undergrad, um, can you tell me what your major uh, was? And as a grad, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, so in undergrad, my uh, major was elementary and special education, and now I'm currently working on my school psychology degree. Fantastic. And what made you choose those as, as your majors? Um, I've always liked working with kids. I started off as a nursing major, um, but I didn't exactly like the sad feelings all the time, you know, so I kind of shifted a little bit there um, because I still wanted to work with children and just be in a school, I guess. And then um, after my residency, you know, I wasn't crazy excited to get my own classroom or anything like that. Like I knew something was just a little bit off. So then we just shifted it off into the school psychology world a little bit. And here we are. And yes, here we are. And it's kind of nice to maybe looking back to kind of see where things went direction wise, but ultimately everything happens the way it's supposed to. It's definitely a right fit now. So and that's actually a great way to put it. Yeah. So that's a perfect fit. So last question is, um, so, you know, and I'm sure that um, academic advising, you've, you had to do that as an undergrad, at least, and meet with your advisor. What was your experience like? And do you feel that it, that it helped you? Um, yeah, so my experience with advisors was very positive, always. Um, I think the room down there, the office down there has a great group of people um, that are always ready and willing to help any student and um, kind of guide you in the right direction. And, you know, they guided me into where I'm at right now. So, yeah. And, and sometimes the students might be a little nervous in terms of seeing their advisor, but just like you said, they're, they're here to help and to guide. So perfect, perfect way to end that. And next up, we have Alanis, who is another graduate student at USD. Alanis, and this one discusses her time at USD as a student athlete, being both an undergrad and grad student at USD, and her experience working with her academic advisor, um, who was her athletics academic advisor. So let's take a listen. So I heard that um, you're a graduate student right now at USD, but you were also previously an undergraduate student Mm -hmm. here. What was your experience like um, as a student? Um, I would say it was pretty positive. I was also an athlete here, too. So um, it was very busy. 
a lot of stuff going on, but overall, I really liked going to school here. I'm from Arizona, so I came 1,200 miles away, and I still really enjoyed going to school here. 1,200 miles away and weather differences. Yeah. How are you liking the cold? I don't like the cold, but obviously I like it just enough to stay here for another two years for grad school. So, so um, from with this being filmed right now, last week apparently there was a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually coming at a good time because I'm from Southern California. Yeah. So for me, um, cold weather is like 65 degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's right now in the 40s. So yeah, yeah I feel you there yeah, on that. I'm not, I'm not feeling it at all. <laughs> I can't wait to go back home once I've graduate. And when is that going to be? Um, May 2021. Right. Early congratulations for that. (laughs) Now, being a student, um, you've also probably had to go see an advisor and get academic advising. Um, What was your experience like with academic advising and working with advisors here? So um, athletes had different advisors from everybody else. So my athletic advisor, I absolutely loved her. Um, She was kind of like a second mom to me. I went in and talked to her and cried to her and also um, obviously scheduled classes and stuff. So I really enjoyed having her there. Um, She always made sure that our classes were scheduled around um, our practices. So we would be able to have morning classes and go to our afternoon classes too. So I um, I really liked having her as an advisor. Wonderful. And as an athlete, um, did you have like certain schedules like for, for training or had to work like your classes around, um, your, your sport? Yeah. So we weren't allowed to have classes later than two o'clock because our practices were usually around two thirty. So, um, yeah, we usually just had classes from whenever morning was until about two o'clock. If you, the only option was for you to have, um, an afternoon class until like three, then we could do that. But we would just have a later group to practice with, or we would try to figure out if we can get a night class right after practice. And I'll just say mad respect to you and, and all at student athletes, because it's like you have your student, but then you also have this other job of being an athlete. And so you have like multiple responsibilities and, and have to balance a lot and have good time management. So props to you for that. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad, but um, I feel like being more busy gives you, like you said, gives you more time management because you don't have time to do anything else besides what you have going on. And last question. So, you know, we're talking about academic advising, senior advisor. Sometimes uh, some students might be nervous to see their academic advisor and, you know, may not know like, well, what do I ask them? Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm scared to see them. What advice do you have for students that, that might feel they're in that boat? Um, I would say to build a relationship with your advisor. Um, I would also say to be prepared when you're going to go see your advisor, make sure you know what classes that you're supposed to take. Um, even though they're supposed to tell you, just still keep that in mind because they have a caseload of however many students. So make sure you know what you have going on. Make sure you kind of have your plan and then they'll just help you set that plan out. And that's it for episode 62. Thanks for traveling with me down memory lane. I'll see you about doing some more of these types of episodes down the road. Check back for episode 63 and an interview with one Dr. Charlie Nutt. Take care and keep advising. (laughs) 